Like, like seriously, if you died, you outperformed the people who were alive, who were logging in and screwing around with their money all the time. What's up, everyone? This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to Off The Chain, simply the best podcast in crypto. Let's kick this thing off. Josh Brown is famous on Twitter and is the CEO of Ritz-Holtz Wealth Management. In this conversation, we cover ghosts, aliens, bubbles, stocks, Bitcoin, Tesla, Tilray, a mysterious Fidelity investment report that disappeared, and how Jim Cramer was once harassed in Costco. This is an absolute must listen. I hope you learn and laugh as much as I did. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only blockchain event and media production company I trust. If you're an investor, lawyer, accountant, or entrepreneur, and want to attend exclusive events and dinners, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. I promise you won't be disappointed. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate, a security token project in the $200 trillion industry of real estate. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinless Comply API to create one of the first tokenized real estate funds, and they have a unique buyback and burn model. To learn more, visit blockestate.com. All right, guys, I'm here with uh, Mr. Downtown Josh Brown uh, himself. Thank you so much for coming. What's up, Hop? This is going to be a great episode. So uh, you've got this huge social following, and I think everyone says, what the heck does that guy do? So let's go through kind of your background and how you got into uh, asset management and and financial planning stuff. Yeah, so I tell people that I kind of like fell into um, the financial advice business through the back door. I I worked at like these third-tier broker-dealers on Long Island, all of them since acquired. Um, no one really um, paid much attention to them at the time. And essentially, I spent the first 10 years of my career, like most retail brokers of that time, cold calling. And I had a front row seat for some really terrible um, investment behavior, not on the part of the clients, quite as much as on the part of the brokers themselves. And the irony of that was these were the senior brokers, quote unquote, senior brokers. So I watched guys fall victim to every cognitive bias, every mistake that you could possibly make uh, without realizing it over and over and over again, whether it was trading or IPOs or tech stocks or recommending the wrong funds. It was just this endless cycle of, you know, fear, greed and, and wash and, you know, rinse, repeat. So I... Um, took all those lessons when I left the brokerage side of the business and I joined the investment advisory side. Simultaneously, I started writing a book about everything that I saw that I thought thought was wrong about the way um, individual investors interacted with Wall Street. And the book was called Backstage Wall Street. Uh, And I think it was kind of like, as I was writing it, I wasn't sure what I wanted it to be. I knew what the message was. But it kind of, I think, formed the basis for how I would run the blog from there on after. And uh, November will be 10 years writing the Reform Broker blog, which is millions of uniques. And um, I love doing it. And people come back and people subscribe. And uh, apparently, I still have, every once in a while, something insightful to say. <laughs> I try. It's, I mean, it's not easy to, like, every day say something insightful. But if I can say a few things a month that help people or are meaningful, then I feel like the, the blog is just a great outlet for me. So that's that's what I do. Um, I'm, I'm a contributor to CNBC. I'm on a couple days a week on the Halftime Report. And I'm the CEO of uh, Ritholtz Wealth Management, which is uh, 26 people about 500 client households approaching a billion dollars in assets and we're five years old. Awesome. And, and so uh, the blog's really interesting, right? Um, first of all, great name in uh, the reformed broker. Thank but, you. But um, as you started writing, like, what was the goal? Was it literally just daily thoughts? Was it to share kind of, um, you know, historical things that you had seen that, that you thought were important for people to learn about? What, what was that goal? Well, I, so I start, it started as a venting exercise. So you have to understand it's November 2008. It's like two months after the fall of Lehman. Everyone's real excited about finance. Yeah, and I live and work in New York City at the time. Everyone I know works for Bear Stearns, for Lehman Brothers. They're bond salesmen. They're this or that. 
guys walking out of these buildings next door to the building I worked in um, with everything they have in a box. Like the, the world feels like it's coming to an end when Bear disappears on, on St. Patrick's Day. And then a few months later, Lehman is gone. And it's just like, and, and everyone else is merging. And you're just like, oh my God. And I think what's different about then versus now, the reporters covering the crisis really didn't understand mm-hmm. finance. Now they probably know too much. They're incre- I mean, we have incredible journalists covering our industry now. I really don't think there were that many that understood what was going on at the time. And it's not their fault. Like there, was very, there were very arcane and esoteric things being bought and sold every day. Um, and they just didn't have, they didn't have that incentive. The financial media um, is selling ad pages. And the ad pages are being sold to growth mutual funds. And they want positive stories. They weren't looking for negatives. That's changed. And I think the journalists covering the industry are now very sophisticated. But I felt at that time... I can say some stuff about what's going on in finance that you might not read in the Wall Street Journal because they're just not quite as, you know, in the trenches as I was. So I had that little edge. And then, but a lot of the stuff that I was doing was really just editorializing on the news. I'm not a reporter. So I was just like, all right, uh, Bloomberg is saying this or CNBC is saying that. Here's, Here's my take. Um, or here's what I'm hearing from people I know in the industry. And I think the audience around the country and around the world just love that kind of perspective. The other thing is I had nothing to lose. I was working at a firm that was itself on the verge of going out of business, like many financial you know, brokerage firms. Um, and so basically I was just telling the truth. Yep. It, it's, uh, it's so funny because uh, I think a lot of people want news, but there's a whole other subset that they want the analysis of the news, right? And they want it from an individual that's got insight, that's got some entertainment humor yeah. to it. Uh, and they just want the truth. Right? Well, well, if you, right. So if you just give someone the news and they don't have the context to understand why it's meaningful or why it isn't, then people are like, okay, I don't know what that means for me. Or worse, oh my God, that sounds like something I should react to. And there are classic examples every day. Like once a year, we get that article, George Soros is buying puts. Now, if if you're unsophisticated and you don't have the context to understand that he's probably buying puts all year round and it's billions of dollars that he's hedging at all times and he's a hedge fund and he's not investing for college savings like you are, you're like, oh my God. It's like the wealthiest, smartest global macro expert investor in the world, and he's betting against the market. No, that's not what's going on, and it's always going on. And so that's what we do with our blogs, and it's not just me. We have like six or seven incredible financial blogs in the firm, and it's not that we say nothing matters. We try to explain to people, okay, you're hearing this news. What does it mean to you? What Should you care? Should you make a move in your portfolio as a result of it? Yep. And you know, frankly, usually the answer is don't do anything. And we've, it's been the right stance like for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's, that's where the perspective that we're coming from. It's uh, what's the saying? Like patience and diligence or uh, patience and discipline can be the best investment strategy. Yeah. So that's easy to say now. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you got a VIX at 12 <laughs> and you, you have uh, 10 years in a row of gains for the total return S&P. It's pretty easy to say. Absolutely. <laughs> um, all right. So you've been going around the country and uh, you've been um, you know, uh, pushing crypto and blockchain and, and why you're excited about it, what some of the risks are. Um, and, and really yeah, having pushing, a kind of a, pushing is probably the wrong word. But, but talking about, right? Uh, right. But, but, but having a kind of, a, again, a real truthful conversation with people about, look, this is an investment opportunity that currently exist and, and how they should think about it. What are those conversations like um, and what's the response been? So I'm a fairly sought after uh, speaker at like financial planning conferences. Can we C- just call CFA. you fa- Can we just say you're famous? Okay. You, right. I mean, D- downtown Josh Brown is famous. In certain circle. Like, right, perfect. I, so I, I will get recognized like in airports and steakhouses. <laughs> um, I will not get recognized at like a shopping mall, <laughs> which is fine. I'm not looking. That's not what I want. Believe me. Uh, I, had a, I had a woman come up to me in O'Hare last week and she goes, I forgot where I know you from, but can we take a picture? Perfect. So I'm like, all right, can I just tell you who I am? And, <laughs> you know, I'm assuming she's seen me on CNBC. So she goes, no, 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 no. I want to realize it later. I want to oh. figure it out. <laughs> all right. So believe me, I'm, I'm good with where I am. All right. But what was I saying? So I, I go on the speaking circuit and I talk to, I love it. I talk to groups of advisors or high net worth investors. Yep. Um, or I speak at like investment conferences to asset managers and- Rather than just like give this 
same presentation all the time about here's the right way to invest or here's how we're building the front. Like I've done that already. So I put together this presentation about blockchain, cryptocurrency. I call it talking to your teen about the blockchain. <laughs> and it's like I, I picture all the questions that the audience has because they only hear shreds of information and they're not doing deep dives. And I try to answer them from a wealth manager's perspective. I'm not a crypto expert. Like that's, I listen to your podcast, by yep. the way. So much of what I know is from podcasts like yours and Patrick O'Shaughnessy's. Yep. Like I, I don't present myself as, okay, let me explain the blockchain to you. I try to talk about it in terms of investing and, and you know, fear and greed and the things that I do know very well. And, um, you know, one first Patrick's uh, podcast is amazing. I, I think he does a great job with it. And then two is what? What Shout is to the? Patrick. Uh, yeah, okay. So, so Patrick's famous too. Yeah. Uh, so, so what do you think is um, kind of the response from people? Are they are they scared of this stuff? Do they not understand it? Do they uh, kind of buy into the hype and they've just jumped in? Where where are they? Well, groups of financial advisors are skeptics. Okay. And self in general or about crypto or both? Both. Both. So, like, if you picture. If you picture my industry, 20 years ago, everyone was a commission-based product salesman. And then 10 years ago, about a third of the industry started to get this certified financial planning designation and moving more toward this fiduciary bent where they're not selling their ability to generate alpha for a client. What they're really saying is, I'm going to help you behaviorally, financially. I'm going to help you with your retirement. We're going to use goal, goals-based planning. Um, and now I think all of the dollar flows in my industry are going toward people who are talking that way. So as a result, that's a self-selecting group. These are people that are like skeptical about anything that seems like it's too good to be true or that wild riches await. Like we're just natural born. And I think that's good because don't forget my industry, we're, we're, ma we're managing people's uh, future cash flows. Like yep. They need this money. It's not fun money. Some of it might be fun money, but in general, like our job is to make sure that somebody doesn't turn around 20 years from now and say, I didn't take enough risk and I ran out of money or I took too much risk, more than I needed to, and it drove me crazy and I made bad decisions along the way. So we should be skeptical. However, the financial services companies that financial advisors interact with every day are doing large scale experimentation with crypto and with blockchain, and they're not idiots, and they're not doing it because they have excess cash in the budget. So when you think about what F Prime is doing at Fidelity, and you think about Vanguard talking about how the blockchain might offer savings on, I think, like trade reconciliation, uh, JP Morgan launching a, a consortium of 75 banks to do international money transfers, or at least experiment. So I think you can't just say to a client, if you're a financial advisor, and they're like, Yo, what do you think about crypto? How much, you know, how much Bitcoin should I own? You can't just be like, you're an idiot. Like you have to, even <laughs> if you think, even if you think it's idiotic, you still have to be armed with data and evidence to have a good conversation. There's a Capgemini study this summer. They said 70% of millionaires under 40 want to get crypto information from their primary wealth manager. Wow. So now if you're a wealth manager, we have this expression I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Don't, don't let the camel's nose under the tent. So <laughs> financial advisors use this expression about insurance guys. They say, don't let this insurance guy come in with, you know, get, it, get his nose under your client's tent because within two weeks, he's going to be selling this guy asset management and drinking your milkshake. So maybe it's not quite at that point with crypto, but do you want to be the, the, the advisor that's like, no, don't pay any attention to it. It's for idiots. And then it turns out that there is some real world application for this yep. stuff and somebody smarter than you is talking to your client. You probably don't want to be in that position, especially yeah. if you're young. And, and also it's a it's a binary thing, right? You don't want to go kind of say, hey, it's absolutely worth zero and it doesn't matter. And, and then you're wrong. Or the other way, you don't want to say, hey, this is the future and, and you should go put all of your assets here. Right. And, and be wrong there either. And so um, I think the balance is uh, what somebody's looking for, especially if they're coming to you. It sounds like for the goals based planning and, and kind of the behavioral, uh, you know, guardrails, if you will, that, that you can put on uh, on their financial. Yeah. decisions. So you have to understand, like where I'm coming from, 41 years old, I started my career in the middle of the dot-com explosion, and I saw it all. And then I, my formative experience was that crash. Yep. And 
I lived through it as like a junior broker working on a team of more senior people with a lot to lose. And just the, the scale of that decimation. And they were all in. They were, the whole firm was all in. They were making markets in uh, NASDAQ.com stocks, big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, they were taking part in things like eToys IPO from Goldman, you know, getting on the syndicate. I just, like I watched everyone just be so incredibly wrong, but right, so right on the idea, but totally wrong on the investment implication. And, um, you know, Andreessen talks about that, that book, uh, can we curse? Can we say yeah. F'd, F'd Company? Yeah. Fucked Company? So, the, so, so there was a, a website called Fucked Company, and I think they did a book. But he said if you turn the pages of that book, every idea that was a blown up dot-com stock actually ended up happening. Yep. It just took a little bit longer. The world wasn't ready for it. So up to and including selling pet food online, selling toys online. So um, Netflix. There was an, uh, Actually, you know who had the original idea for Netflix? Who? Enron. <laughs> I swear to God. Google this. Enron and Blockbuster cut a deal for streaming movies on the internet. I swear to God. That's amazing. So every stupid idea from that era actually was not a stupid idea. The world just wasn't there yet. Yeah. Uh, or the infrastructure wasn't there. So if we think that trading coins that have no you know, intrinsic value, have no cash flows, um, are backed by shady cabals of people that you can't trust, have no oversight, all of that is true doesn't mean that you can just outright say none of this will ever have any value. So so what do you think about Bitcoin? Uh, I own some. I, I, I bought it at like 2300 and I announced it publicly because if, if, you know, I like to have some skin in the game if I'm yep. going to try to take credit. For those that don't know, when you bought it at 2300 <laughs> it was like July of uh, yeah, people two, went, 2017. People went crazy because there weren't a lot of mainstream um, financial commentators, famous, who were willing to be, who are willing to be like, yeah, I'm gonna give it. Now, I didn't buy it and say this is gonna change the world. I said, let's see what happens. Let's see what happens. And, and but hold on, we got to call out when you bought it in July. What happened afterwards? It went nuts. It went nuts. And, and uh, I that, saw well, that it. was the breakout. But I don't think I caused the breakout. It was just right at that moment. Yeah, because I bought it on technicals, by the way. But well, here's the best part is so then uh, December 10th. Right? Didn't you call uh, that? that so uh, it. You, you said it was over. Yeah. And so, if you look at a chart, I saw your blog post. Yeah. When you bought it, it's like right before the bull. You know, the major bull run starts, and you literally ten days or uh, four days before the uh, the, the top of the market. So well, I, so here's what I did. I came out in December after going to. Um, I don't want to use names because a friend of mine invited me to this event, and it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and I, the next morning, I said, I wrote this. I said, I went to this thing last night. It was like. Wall Street CTOs, like serious firms, sent their tech guys. And they had a panel of quote unquote crypto experts. It was the dumbest shit. It was like some guy from China saying that he, like every question someone asked him about cloud or what, he'd be like, oh yeah, we do that. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, like, oh, and what about if uh, we could use the distributed ledger? But we could use DNA and we could figure out if someone's going to get sick before they do. And you could buy in with tokens if you're a researcher. And he goes, oh, yeah, we do that, too. Like it was just it was like four charlatans on a panel um, or one guy had launched a hedge fund that was like a crypto hedge fund, had blown up two stock hedge funds and bond hedge funds. He's like, all right, here's my next thing. So it was just like the next crater in the earth. <laughs> and the guys I was sitting with and I'm like the furthest thing from a tech expert. But they were technology. And so they would ask these really insightful questions. They'd be like, all right, so um, in Long Beach, California, they have the port. And there's a huge expense involved with making sure the right container goes to the right ship and et cetera. And um, if blockchain were employed and there were no middle brokers and it was just the ships and the, and the containers talking to each other or whatever, and they'd be like, yeah. And so then like an, like an idiot, I raise my hand. They go, okay, that sounds awesome. How does it, how is there a coin going up as a result of that? Can you explain like, <laughs> like, like can that just can that just be like a, a technological advance, this decentralized computing and peer to peer without there being like a Lambo? And the guys in the panel were like, no, well, of course the coin's gonna go up. I'm like, what what coin and why? And they just they hadn't connected A and B. Yep. So I just like the next day I was like, this is all nonsense. The, 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 there doesn't need to be a coin. If you believe that blockchain, now I understand that you need tokens in the ecosystem, but it doesn't have to be something that's trading like a, a rocket ship every day. Yeah. So, well, well the, the best part is uh, on the blog post you wrote, it literally is you 
uh, you know, a couple days before the bull run starts, you bought Bitcoin. And on December 10th, which is uh, four days before the top of the market, you basically came out and said, this is nonsense. Yeah. So, it's the only thing I've ever been that right about in my life. <laughs> so don't, do not count on that to happen twice. Absolutely. All right. So um, how are you talking to clients about uh, allocating to Bitcoin or other crypto, right? Is it, uh, hey, get 50 basis points exposure? Is it on a per yeah. individual like custom goals? How do you think about it? So at the current moment, there is no legal way for a financial advisor to even have that buy or sell conversation. Okay. Because based on the fiduciary standard and I've been through multiple SEC examinations at different firms, um, FINRA on the record interviews, like based on all of my um, contact with regulators over the years, which is fun. it's good that regulators yep. are involved. Um, the one thing I can tell you is if you make a recommendation like that, they're going to say, show me the spreadsheets. Like in other words, how did you arrive at this decision for your clients? What is the, the reasonable basis? Yep. If I recommend a portfolio of REITs, I can show them, um, you know, this is the, this is the funds from operations. This is it adjusted funds from operations? This is the distributions. This is my client's ordinary income tax rate. And here's why I put it in an IRA. I can take investment committee notes from that decision and say, this is why we did this. You can defend they're, it. Yeah. And they're not looking at, did it work or not? They're looking at process. Yep. There is no possible way that any fiduciary advisor in America wants to sit across the table from an SEC examiner and explain the process by which they put their client into shit coins. Like it's, can you like can you imagine? Like no nobody in their right mind would do that. So can you not defend it with a person on Twitter saying uh, when moon? Yeah, I should print that out. <laughs> yeah, right. Here's here's why I, here's why I put my client's retirement account into like so. I'm not saying we won't get to that point. Yep. It's very early days, but I will tell you, you're right in your instinct that the institutional market has to come along first. Yep. It's always that way. Yep. The other thing is, I've seen the dot com is like one story. In 2004 and 2005, we had a poker boom. You ever hear about that? No. How old, how old are you? No. Tell me about that. All right. How old are you? 31 or 30. Oh, 30. Okay. So I don't even know how old I am. Is that bad? All right. So the year is 2004. <laughs> We're all wearing backwards Von Dutch trucker hats. All right. Paris Hilton is a big thing. <laughs> we'll talk about it later. But by the way, I'm in high school. Yeah. It's cool. So you know, you know, you know what's going on. Uh, you listen to Ludacris, I assume? Yeah. Okay. Nelly. All, all Nelly. Yeah. Okay. It, was, it was great. Country groomer. <laughs> so so uh, we have this poker boom on Wall Street. They were like, Six publicly traded companies that have something to do with Texas Hold'em. Either they're providing the software for online poker or they're like B2B with the casinos or they're selling poker lessons. One of them is an offshore and you could gamble. And these stocks go bananas. And everyone you know for like a six-month stretch, I don't understand it to this day, is playing Texas Hold'em. It's the biggest show on TV on ESPN Dude, we six play, we or whatever in high school, right? Like for no reason, it just happened. Like it was like a rash. It just happened, and then it was gone. And of course, those stocks were all gone with it. I'm not suggesting that cryptocurrencies are quite a great analog for that, but some of them individually probably are. Absolutely. And well, you, you, and you know this better than I do. You see these flare ups in interest in Zcash, yep, and then it fades, and it's like, well, why did it happen, and why did it go away? There, you can, you can. You can uh, ex post come up with a reasonable explanation for these things. It's very hard in the moment to figure out why something's doing that. Well, I mean, let's just go right at uh, at the most controversial one, Ripple, right? So uh, or XRP. So la last week or two weeks ago, it went up like sixty or eighty percent. I forget. I mean, some enormous double digit percentage, right. and nothing changed. Right. Do you find it ironic that the things that crypto enthusiasts are most excited about all re revolve around centralization? In what way? <laughs> Well, everyone's really excited about this backed project, yep. which is essentially the New York Stock Exchange inserting itself as a middleman into the crypto <laughs> environment, charging yep. buyers, charging sellers, warehousing securities, deciding what the rules are going to be with the SROs, self-regulatory yep. organization. So you have that, uh, CBOE starting, and CME. Well, it, 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 These are centralization things that involve centralized oversight. So how, do you, like, how can you be a... Uh, a crypto hippie or an economic anarchist or whatever you call yourself and then be like, this is going to be really bullish 
when we, <laughs> when we finally get when we finally get legitimized, uh, you know, centralized trading. Hold on, back up. I've never heard crypto hippie before. Yeah, I just I just <laughs> the, made that, that show. <laughs> when you're famous, you can do that. All right. So uh, I, I think that what you're hitting at is uh, there, there's two components, right? There's the people who actually believe in the decentralization and kind of the the, the reasons or, or the ethos of uh, of crypto in general, right? And, and why that's important. And there's the people who are looking to get rich, right? And and they're looking for investment opportunities, etc. Um, I, I think where what we're seeing right now is this thirst for validation, right? Yes. Or, or um, you know, kind of legitimacy in the financial markets. And so, if you ask kind of the crypto anarchist folks, they actually hate backed and they hate you know futures and, and all the you know rehypothecation and, and all that kind of stuff is just it, it's the same game, you know, different asset. So right? they want to stay poor. Are you saying? Stay poor, yeah, because well, those are the things that drive price increases in the coins. Yeah, I mean, look, I think that I think that those people, the crypto anarchist types, their belief is just over a long period of time, this stuff's going to you know accrue value, and so we don't need that stuff in the short term to right. you know affect it, right? Now, if you go to the other side, and what's probably more the like invest the, the investment side, yeah, the the retail traders, and and I mean, frankly, the people who are on Twitter, you know, pumping stuff and doing all the, the kind of the craziness, right? I mean, look, one these people have no clue what they're doing. Two is, you know, my, my favorite thing is uh, when people ask me about coins, I tell them uh, penny stock uh, tickers, right? right? And they literally think they're coins. They, yeah, they, have, no clue, they have no clue, right? right. And they're essentially the same thing. Uh, and then the third piece I think that, that becomes really interesting is on the, uh, on the altcoin side, um, you know, your point about why do you need a token or why do you need a coin? Probably 60% of the pitches that I've heard, it's, oh, because this is our currency. Like, it's yeah, our own no, proprietary currency. Right. It's right. like, okay, so we got gift cards that, we're worth five dollars now. They're going to be worth fifteen dollars. Right. I don't get it. I think you know we've come out publicly and said we think you know ninety percent of those are going to go to zero. Well, wait, it's it, that's not the, it's not why do you need your own currency? I understand it's you know why would a secondary market form around your that's the that's so someone's like well should I trade like Filecoin or well are you going to use it? No, yep. I just want to speculate in it. When you think about uh, frequent flyer miles. Let's say you have $5,000 worth of Delta miles and you know you can't use it and you actually need the cash right this minute. Yep. So wouldn't you wouldn't you want to sell those 5,000 miles for $4,000 if you could have the cash today? Yep. But there is no that doesn't it's not a thing that people are doing. Yeah, of course. No one's buying and selling Chuck E Cheese tokens outside of the the ski ball pit. Like <laughs> there are not secondary markets for everything just because it has a price. Absolutely. Nor does there need to be. So that's the my token. I understand why you would build an ecosystem that's got its own currency. I don't have a problem with that. The second derivative of, and people are going to drive the price up because they're bullish on the service. Why? Why would they do that? Yeah, it, well, well, it's some of it's uh, the speculators are coming in and driving their price up, and then the other piece is there's financial engineering going on, right? So if you look at, um, you know, this happens, uh, take the Tilray stock, right? I mean, that thing exploded, and some of it is, you know, just hype and, and right. kind of everyone rushes in. Some of it's financial engineering in terms of the, the circulating supply or kind of the float and, and how uh, they're doing that. And so I think what we're seeing is like those more sophisticated models and, and um, you know, kind of uh, methodology being applied to a super nascent market where there's very little controls. It's uh, not as nearly as liquid. And, and so when you uh, execute that stuff, the repercussions are, you know, on steroids, basically. So I'm glad you brought up the term supply, because actually one of the arguments that I mock in my presentation is the scarcity argument okay. about any crypto. So I come from this from the standpoint that anything man-made, there's no such thing as scarcity. Man can make more. Um, and so I know, I understand the 21 million Bitcoins and there would be more, blah, blah, blah. Okay, but if there's forks, then maybe there's 21 and then another set of 21 of something else. Yep. And if there are altcoins and some of these begin to be taken seriously or have a real use case and become a thing, well, then that can be infinite too. Um, and Tilray... The, this is the big marijuana stock that um, went absolutely crazy over the last what, couple weeks. What did it weeks. go up, like 600% or something? More. It was like $15 went to 300 or something. It was, <laughs> it was hilarious. But why did, why did that happen? Well, Constellation Brands took a stake in another publicly traded company, a, a very big stake, and that stock went crazy. And everyone on Wall Street and off Wall Street said, well, what's the next blank? And so they found Tilray, which I'm not saying it's a fake company. It's got, I don't know, $20 million in sales yep. or something. And they've got apparently licenses from the Canadian government to sell 
uh, THC enriched products or whatever it is, um, and maybe it'll be successful. It's not going to be a $25 billion company overnight just because it's the only other marijuana stock that publicly trades, but that's the real. So it trades on a real exchange. It's got a decent sized market cap. It's liquid for institutions to buy and sell. So that thing becomes, it, you know, it becomes like the thing to gamble on for everyone. And yep. then- Well, it's greater fool theory. And then the shorts come in and they're too smart for their own good. So they start betting against it way too early. They get taken out in body bags. And before you know it, you have this phenomenon where people's grandmothers are calling them up, should I buy some Tilray? And then of course that's the end. Um, this one was a boom and bust inside of 10 days. It was yep. pretty remarkable to watch. The sole reason that went on is scarcity. If there were 10 Tilrays publicly traded, or if Tilray had 5 billion shares in the float, you would never have seen that level of, um, that level of excitement and enthusiasm. And what Wall Street's really good at is feeding the ducks. Mm -hmm. When the ducks are quacking, Wall Street is very good at feeding them. And what that means is coming up with more supply. Yep. Oh, they like this? Let's do seven IPOs and we'll call it, right? Oh, they like Uber? Well, this is the Uber for clothes and this is the Uber <laughs> for food and this is the Uber for, you know, whatever. So, the, I mean, I, I've watched that cycle play out probably five or six times. Um, so Wall Street will give you more till raise. Yep. You'll have 20 of them by the end of the year if that stock stays above 100. I promise you. Yep. They, now, they'll be of lessening quality. Yep. And you won't know which one is going to survive, of course, but that's the risk that's in the market. But, and all they're trying to do is steal market share. Yeah, but if you're – right. So if, you're, if your base case, like investment – if your investment thesis for anything, I don't care if it's a coin or if it's a stock or, or, or a commodity, um, is scarcity – Understand that the demand in the marketplace will be met. This is capitalism. It's going to happen. may not happen overnight or it may happen already and you're not even expecting it so soon. So I think like people need to have a better reason than just, well, it's the only game in town. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what percentage chance do you put on Bitcoin becoming the global reserve currency? I, so if I don't have a, a, phil, a philosophy about crypto, but if I did, I would probably be a Bitcoin maximalist. Okay. So I don't care either way. I don't have like a, I don't have like a, a dog in the fight. But, but just just if the, I think the best thing for cryptocurrency in general is for one of them to become like really legitimate, and for that to happen, everyone should stop working on everything else, stop funding everything else, stop playing games with tokens. Just make that a real thing. Build layers on top of that to make it more useful. Yep. Um, you know, doing transactions is a joke right now. Um, the store value argument is stupid when there's no custodian you could trust. Like, all of those things have to be addressed. And if you, I feel like if you get your foot in the door with, with, with the Wall Street mainstream by actually having something that's usable for both transactions and for investing, yep. then all of these other projects should be addressed. It's interesting to hear your perspective, too, because you, I mean, you are very much boots on the ground. You're talking to retail investors, you're talking to financial planners, et cetera, right? And so things like there's no custodian to trust, right, is, is interesting words, uh, even with, uh, so BitGo, uh, maybe two, three weeks ago, got, uh, finally got a qualified custodian license, right? Yeah. And so- um, How much of your money did you put there? Well, well so here, here's what I was going to say is that is the legal bar to have been met, right, in terms of they, okay, now they check the box. We are a qualified custodian. It's not an emotional bar, though. But but it doesn't mean that right. they're trusted, yeah, right? Of so it's hey, we don't trust is very different than did you meet the legal requirement, right? right? And so I think that that gets lost a lot in crypto is that people are oh we here's the box we need to check okay we checked it we checked it we checked it when's the ETF right yeah, so you could listen the on, emotional argument is different right so on on Wall Street you've got you've got custodians that are that are both trusted and legal and go under. MF, yep. MF Global uh, was one of the biggest broker-dealers on the street, and they had thousands of customer accounts, and they were run by a former CEO and former governor of New Jersey, uh, a former CEO of Goldman Sachs and former governor of New Jersey, John Corzine. And when MF Global went down because of proprietary trades they were doing during the European crisis, thousands of retail customers had to wait to find out whether or not their funds were commingled in some of these, in, seriously, that's nuts. Um, that's nuts. And so, and they and they were managing billions and billions of dollars of like traditional broker dealer money with 
um, FINRA oversight. And so, like, now somebody comes along and gets a license. All right, that's great. Call me in 100 years. I'll tell you if I trust you. Right? Yeah. My, when my ancestors live and die and their accounts are on your platform. I, I was in Europe speaking to financial advisors there. They don't even call themselves that. They call themselves fund selectors. And here's why. They can't get fired. Really? Cannot. You know why they can't get fired? Because there's nothing they could do that would ever get a client to move their money. You're talking about the Netherlands. They have banks that are 400 years old. Italy has banks that are 500 years old. Italy has banks today that date back to the Renaissance. The traditional wealthy people in Europe, in each one of these countries, Spanish people, uh, English people, they have, had mo- they have had money in these banks for like 20 generations of their family. They will never, they will never move their money. They will never move their money. Some of these banks are in horrible shape financially. You read about them in the Financial Times as the next bank to go under. Yep. People still don't move their money. So when you talk about trust and a high bar, yep. that's like centuries of, well, my family for as long as time goes back has had money at this bank in Amsterdam and I'm not moving it. So the guys that work there as advisors, they really can't get, it's very hard to get fired. Um, so when you think about a custodian coming into this business, it's got to be Bank of New York Mellon. Yeah. It's got to be Schwab it, uh, or Fidelity. Like I feel like anyone lesser than that will not address the problem. Before we move on, I want to tell you about our sponsor, Block Estate, a new security token project in the $200 trillion real estate market. They've partnered with Polymath and Coinless Comply API to create one of the world's first tokenized real estate funds. Tokenization is the process of creating a digital token that represents ownership in a real world asset. You've heard me say it before, but a clear use case for this is real estate. Block Estate aims to bring increased liquidity to this massive market. We're really, really thankful for, to the Block Estate team for their support. So we'd appreciate if you checked out their website at blockestate.com to learn more. If you're intrigued by what they're doing, feel free to reach out to them or give them a tweet on Twitter. Thanks so much. You hear a lot about uh, kind of the knocks against crypto, right? Custody is one of them, but money laundering, you know, all, all these different knocks. And, and I think that a lot of people in crypto who might not be as well versed in kind of traditional finance and, and kind of regulation, et cetera, they turn and, and they look and they say, yeah, but the U.S. dollar is used to launder more money or, you know, the criminal's choice of currency is the U.S. dollar. And, and you know, we love it because... Um, you know, I, I think it's hilarious that, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal came out the other day and said uh, all this money laundering is going on. We looked at 64 exchanges over the last two years and we found $90 million of money laundering. Yeah. Right. And you look yeah, at US I can get I could get past that. Right. I'm not. That's not a. Re- right. So look well, at H- HSBC uh, six years ago. They There was like a crime wave going on. They were like laundering money for the triads and for well, uh, Donk's bank or whatever, right? Yeah. They did like Drug $235 cartels and, billion in yeah. one location. I can get past that. There's, I read some statistic that like 90% of all $100 bills have uh, cocaine residue on them. Yeah, it, so it, it's US gone, dollars could be used for anything it's that gone crypto down. can be used so, for. So uh, it, it used to be 90, and, and right. we recently looked, and it's uh, it's 70% now. So the, so the printing machine is uh, is diluting out the... Uh, diluting the, out the, the cocaine. Yeah, the cocaine bills. I'll have to switch uh, my <laughs> currencies. Good All to right. know. So uh, how'd you get such a large Twitter following? I think I was early. You're, li- you're wild on Twitter. You're famous and wild on Twitter. I think I was early. I, I mean, I, I chalk up a lot of my success to just going there and, and spending a lot of time there and yep. making friends with the other people who were there early. And we invented it. Like there was no – in 2009 when I started tweeting, there was no one in the industry yep. that was like – other than journalists who don't have the same restrictions. But I got permission to be – on Twitter, and there were things I couldn't do, which I didn't want to do anyway. Did you have your real name on it from day one? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Ne- I never. I've never written anything anonymously in my life. Um, I feel like if somebody, I understand why some people have to. Yep. Uh, I didn't have to, so why would I? I don't have anything to hide. If I have an opinion, I want people to know it's my opinion. All right, perfect. So let's talk about uh, another guy with a large Twitter account, uh, Musk and uh, and Tesla. What do you think? I feel. I. I don't know. I go back and forth. I feel like he's. I feel like he probably like three years ago should have been like, I'm not the CEO uh, of t- uh, Tesla yeah. specifically. Yeah. Well, I don't th- I think he's like just obviously brilliant and has come up with just these amazing things and his pursuit of things that people said was impossible. Yep. Now the whole industry is following him into electric vehicles and like, I, I don't have a problem with him personally, but I just, I feel like certain leaders know when it's time to say, I was the right person for the company up until this point, and now I'm no longer the right person. 
And sometimes that ends up being wrong and the founder has to come back. Like Jobs, like uh, Schultz at Starbucks, mm-hmm. uh, like Charles Schwab. You know, so, sometimes it's not sometimes it's not quite that black and white. But I think other times it's like, all right, I they needed a visionary for X number of years. They needed somebody who had the guts to, you know, um, make these bold uh, moves. And I did that. And now the company's in a certain place where maybe operationally we'd be better off. And I'm going to tell you something interesting. There's a school of thought that Tim Cook – it's not as good as Steve Jobs um, at the job of CEO. And I would say um, when Steve Jobs died, Apple was worth $200 billion, Yep. And now it's worth a trillion. So Tim Cook has delivered 4x the amount of shareholder. If you want to like, do it just by uh, date and time. That's an aggressive statement. But, but, but I, I understand. But, but I'm, I'm, I'm making the point that maybe Jobs would not have been the right person. Of course. Um, now that the iPhone – was was conceived and put on the market. Maybe what you really needed was an operational person who could get it to the point where they could sell four billion phones. Yep. And I don't know that that's definitely uh, the case. That and the other thing is, Jobs was very bold and a visionary and invented amazing stuff. He might have sunk the company with a very bad investment and a, a terrible idea or a huge bold sweeping move. It, it's counterfactual. We don't know. Yeah, it's no just way all to know. Ifs. Yeah, yeah. So I, I like I, I hate when people say. So my so here's a point on Musk. Maybe it's maybe the best thing that ever could have happened to him is this SEC settlement, yep. and now maybe he's the CEO, but an adult comes in as chairman, someone that maybe knows the auto industry, and focuses him, and keeps him out of doing having to do certain things. Absolutely. Would uh would your head explode if he did a uh, an ICO to uh, to fund Tesla? Uh, I, so has he talked about crypto at all? I know he was a PayPal guy back in the day. Has has he said yeah, anything about blockchain? No, so I, I don't think that he specifically said anything as much as I think a lot of people, and, and look, I've even said it, that uh, if there was a, a major company, right, or kind of a larger company that's in the news a lot, uh, that it would make sense for, right? So if you take a Tesla, for example, if he was to issue some sort of token uh, and use it as like credits on the inter- or on the um, charging stations or something like that, right, I could see him. But why, but who, why does somebody need that? I guess would be my well, question. Well, so there's already credits, right? So the whole idea here is he'd use Right, it but as, why does there have to be a tradable market in those credits? There, there doesn't need to be. He would use it as a fundraising mechanism. Oh, right? my God. It, it's basically he would do you know? Would do you know what the bears would do? Of course. If, if of course. Oh, and by the way, I'm not saying that this is- People would flip out. I'm not saying this is the best thing for them to do, but I'm saying you take a, a founder who has uh, a lot of historical precedents for pre-selling- Right, so he pre-sells cars, he yeah. does all stuff. So to pre-sell the credits, not out of the question. And then to do it in a way where uh, you know, his media presence and, and their ability to tell stories could actually inflate price over a long period of time, drive more revenue to the company. Like You could very quickly draw, a, a somewhat squiggly, but, but still draw a line between where they are today and, and having a tokenized credit system uh, that, that brings uh, a lot of capital to the company. I've, yeah, but, so that, but then if you're, you're talking about a guy that just settled the SEC, well, now, yeah, now might be out of the question. The SEC is 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 saying that ICOs are securities. Yep. Um, they have a test. I forgot the name of it, but how we test? Yeah. So from the Orange Grove, yeah. they said basically you're se- you're selling an operating business um, and shares in it and an interest in it. You're selling a security. You you might say, well, it's just orange trees, but to us, it's a security, and uh, it's a little nebulous. Like they they can apply that where they see fit. This guy just settled. <laughs> he just lost his chairmanship. Um, he got all. He, I mean, he, he got a pretty good deal, though. No, right? co- no comment on that. I don't know. I don't know the, the. I don't know what's going on in the background. I, just, I just. I just say like, is that the kind of thing that he wants to now do? Yeah. Is start issuing different types of security. I would say if you if 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 you think about pre-selling and having a, a credit, he's already got bonds out there, and the bonds trade like crypto. <laughs> so <laughs> you're, you're not. You're not. There's no shortage of instruments that you can bet on or against uh uh the tesla ecosystem you just you you just have to look absolutely um all right so let's talk about uh markets market cycles etc uh you you're recently going back for somebody about um i think it's uh let me see here uh, 1938 to 1975 um was this like 35 year bull market uh in the stock market right and you're basically making the point that look Every bull market ends at some point, but it doesn't have to necessarily one end with a crash, and two, it's not just you know ten year cycles. Well, so yeah, so what what we were looking at, so we get this question. All right, so I was talking about the financial media earlier. Now let's talk about the financial blogosphere. There are a lot of people who do their best to attract attention by 
um, making these extremely bearish calls and predicting crashes, and then the crash doesn't happen, and a week later they're predicting a new crash. And if you ca- call a crash every week, you eventually get it right. Yeah. Well, yeah, but it could be decades. Is of course, the, is, is the question <laughs> you just asked me. So, so like we're we're trying to help people invest for 30, 40 year periods. Like that's what we do, mm-hmm. and we expect that there are going to be like terrible market events. So we build portfolios that we think are durable enough to allow for those things to happen. Mm-hmm. However, we don't take the next step where we start making outright bets on crashes. Yep. That's not what we do. Yep. There are hedge funds that do that. That's fine. I have a problem with it. It's not what retirement planning is. What we're trying to do is match future cash flows with future liabilities for people on an individualized basis. What we're not trying to do is call the next 1987. But I understand that there are people who get in the media and the way they do it is saying these like outrageous things. It's fine. Um, they're counting on the short attention span of the media and the American public. So it's going to be a crash. It's going to be a crash. It's going to be say like eight times in the ninth, the ninth year you say it, there's a crash. Write your book. Go on your speaking tour. You're a genius. Now, we will not let the world forget that that's not how it worked. Um, so that's what we do with our blogs. We're not going after people personally. We're just saying like, here's why you need to tune that noise out. So to your question, from 1938 to 1972, we did some research looking into crashes versus ordinary bear markets. There were plenty of 20% declines during that period. Mm-hmm. 20% declines hurt mm-hmm. for the stock market. They're not fun. Um, there were no crashes, not one. You had one in 73, 74. Um, you had the, the beginning of the last crash in 37, 38, and that was it. So you had entire decades, 34 years, 34 and a half years of just normal ups and downs in the stock market, buyable downs, you know, rideable ups. Um, and people forget that whatever the bull market we're in right now, sure, it could end with a crash, but it doesn't have to. Yeah. It's not, it's, 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 it's not, a, it's not a, a foregone conclusion. The reason why people have trouble understanding that or realizing that is the recency bias. The last two examples we have of cycles ending were 2000 and 2008. So inside of a 10-year period, we had two 50% crashes in the S&P. Think about what that does to psychology. So the next time stocks start moving down 10%, 15%, the crash calls are going to be really loud. This has to end with a cutting in half of the stock market. That's what people are going to be saying. And we will be out there on the front lines helping people understand that while that is a possibility, it's a very low probability possibility, and that it's more likely we just have a run-in-the-mill cyclical downturn and then recovery. Got it. What's the number one uh, financial advice question you get? Right? When you're talking to a client, what, what are they worried Should about? Should I buy right? Apple? Apple? Yeah. Not, cl- not from clients. Like on the street. Yo, should I sell my Apple? Should I buy Apple? Why, why that company? It's just like a trillion-dollar stock. It's the most widely known company in the world at this point. It's, uh, it's the most widely held stock for obvious reasons. It's made people a ton of money. Everyone has some. If people don't own it individually, it's the largest holding in their portfolio by virtue of its position in ETFs. Um, so people have when – I, when I see people on the street, they want to ask me a question. Nobody ever asks, how much should I – uh, count on withdrawing each year for retirement, or like nobody, can, or how, how, when do I when do I have to start putting away money for college? Yesterday is the answer, by the way. Um, but people are like, what do I do with Apple? Sometimes Amazon. Do, do people like two. yell this at you? Like you're walking through the airport yes. and they're like, "Yo, downtown Josh, like what do I do with Apple?" You know, uh, when I when, one of the first times I ever met Jim Cramer, um, we were writing a book, um, and we were writing a book about financial pundits and what it's like to make public calls in the markets and then live with the consequences or the, the victories. Yep. And I was asking Jim about that. And Jim's been, Jim's like one of my earliest idols. And I started reading him in 1998. And, uh, so Jim was telling a story about he was in Costco. I think he was maybe with his daughter or his wife or something. I forget. But he was saying like in one aisle, um, a woman runs up to him and wraps her arms around him. Thank you so much. You got me out of Lucent Technology, and uh, you know I was able to take two hundred thousand dollars out of it, and I would have lost all of it. And you know it was like this, this like really warm, touching moment. So he's in like the dairy aisle, and then he wheels the cart around to the next aisle. I don't know, poultry, whatever. And this guy's just berating him. <laughs> How dare you tell me to buy? You know, whatever. This is a guy that's said buy sell on a thousand stocks a year for ten, 
you know, 20 years. Yep. So it's, you know. It, Can't believe he got one wrong. I, I mean, it's like insane. The the le- So, and here's what's interesting about it. I thought about this. ESPN versus Bloomberg and CNBC. Like ESPN, every week they have the fantasy guys. Play yeah. this guy. Don't play that guy. Or, um, you know, people talk about, they don't talk about spreads, but they talk about straight up. Chicago's going to win this week. Um, no, uh, Philadelphia's going to win. People don't like berate these people on the street. But for some reason with finance, because I guess gambling is not legal and investing is, it's the same level of thought that goes into both. Like you're trying to guess at an uncertain future. Yep. You're doing your best to incorporate the information you have. But this idea that like someone's an idiot because they were wrong on a – you know how many stocks Warren Buffett was wrong on? Yep. Like destroyed an IBM like last year, finally admitted defeat. Spent five years averaging down an IBM and then took a loss on the whole thing. Horrendous, on an absolute basis, horrendous. On a relative basis, even worse, because the entire tech sector tripled in that period of time. So Warren Buffett's an idiot, right? Mm-hmm. So like that's the I think that that gut instinct that people have to look at someone who's been wrong about something and then just extrapolate. You're a moron. You don't know anything. Well, no, I just was wrong about that one thing. No, idiot. I decided. Yeah. So I think you have to like you have to accept that that comes along with the territory of having opinions, you know, public opinions. I, I've never actually uh, heard somebody say, "Oh, that person's always right." Right there, whenever they run com- away, whenever run away comment, if someone's always right. Well, just whenever somebody comments about uh, talking head, a you know, analyst, uh, anybody who makes a call, whatever, it's they always comment about the negative. It's always oh, that person's never right. That person's never right. Oh, do the opposite of what they do. No one ever says, oh, that person's always right. Or that person's right more than they're wrong. And I think part of it is uh, the losses hurt more than the gains, and so 100%. that's what people remember. Right? It, yeah. Is oh, that that person led me to the slaughterhouse? Well, right. There's a there's. It's behavioral uh, science backing that idea that um, losing money feels like almost twice as bad as making money um, because it's something being taken away from you is more powerful feeling than trying to get something and not getting it that you didn't already have. Um, I I went to like Belmont to the, the horse tracks like three years ago for a goof. And there are like all these old guys sitting on the bench and they, they show up every race day in the summer and they're wearing their finest members-only jackets and you know plaid sports coats from the yep. '70s, and the world has kind of left them behind. And but this is their thing, and they they bet. And I went with like three friends, and we don't know any. I couldn't name one one jockey, one horse. I have no idea. I ne- I don't watch this stuff. I'm not even a gambler. We go up to the window and we start just randomly asking for things. We don't even understand what they are. It's hilarious. We're drinking. <laughs> so so one of these guys comes over and he, he whispers to one of my friends, he's like, Psst, come here. He sees that we have a lot of cash with us. He's like, come here. Here's what you do. And he gives us like this really complex thing. And we do it and it hits. Oh, man. So this guy's like walking toward the exit. And my friend Steve, he's like, get that guy. Get back here. He chases guy down the hall. And I'm, and I'm like, leave him alone. Stop it. The guy doesn't know anything. He just he was lucky. He goes, what are you talking about? This guy's an expert. I look at a guy, he's like smoking a Newport. He's like in the most miserable physical condition. No, he's not an expert. He's sitting at Belmont on a, on a Saturday by himself, literally smoking cigarettes. He's not an expert in anything. But that that's how easy it is for us to see somebody have success yep. and then just assume that there's some repeatability. And, you know, it took me a long time to realize there are going to be people who get things right and wrong. And you can't expect the absolutes from in either case. Yeah. Well, and a lot of it is uh, focusing more on the process than the, than the outcome because, uh, you know, I, I think uh, even take horse uh, picking, for example, you know, people put machines against them and they still can't figure it out. Right. Because it's just that it's almost yeah. impossible. Also, outcomes are uh, processes invisible. Outcomes are very visible. Outcomes are what pay you. Absolutely. So um, everyone likes to talk about their process. But in the end, if they make a ton of money on something and it was totally wildly outside of their process, they're not going to be like put an asterisk next to that shit. They're going to be like, look how smart I am. Of course. So that's human nature. All right. Let's do, uh, let's do some rapid fire questions real quick before we wrap up. Okay. Um, what's the most controversial thought that you have in finance or crypto? Like if you were to right now tweet whatever this thought is, you would get just murdered on the internet. <laughs> so say it on your podcast. <laughs> the most controversial thought. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I like don't, what do you believe that just a yeah. huge percentage of people disagree with you on? 
All right. So, all right. So, I think that my most controversial thought just on investing in general is that as a financial advisor, we put so much time and effort into educating clients and um, speaking to them all the time, communicating every day, blogs, podcasts, Twitter, TV. We're just constantly messaging clients, but actually be better off if they totally ignored us and they moved to a desert island or they were like, heaven forbid, like in some situation where they had no electricity for 25 years, that would actually be better than um, all of that constant communication. Why? The thing is, because, so there's this apocryphal uh, fidelity study. I'm convinced it existed and they buried it. Um, other people have said that they've seen it. And okay. I know I've seen it, but nobody has a link to it. Nobody can find it on a Google search. No one has evidence that it existed. But the study was, Fidelity looked at who their top performing self-directed retail accounts were. And it turns out it was people who lost their passwords. People who died. <laughs> like, like seriously, if you died, you outperformed the people who were alive, who were logging in and screwing around with their money all the time. So now that's it. So, so that opinion. That's that, a wild study. Now, that, now you know why they killed it. Because they want you logging in. You don't do trades and you don't log in, Right. Um, Man, if somebody out there can find it, let uh, just tweet at one of us. No one will find it. Oh, believe me, I, I put a bounty. I put a $5,000 bounty on Twitter. Anyone who could produce the original PDF or whatever format. Um, and I think Fidelity, a reporter called Fidelity and they denied it. I think Jason Zweig called up to see if, if they had ever heard of it and they said no. Um, can, we I, up, can we up that bounty? I'll, I'll match you. Well, yeah, do it in, uh, do it right. in, <laughs> do it in, do it in Ripple. It's fake anyway. <laughs> just kidding. All right. <laughs> Just kidding. Stop. I love Ripple. I'm wearing a Ripple t-shirt, right? Tell them. <laughs> so, um, so, oh, so what was I saying? So I, I, I think like the most controversial thing I think is that people should pay almost no attention at all. It should be, it, it should be like the weather channel. The only time you should look is if a tornado is headed to you. Um, but it, since that's not going to be the case yep. and it's people's money and they are going to pay attention, I think what we're doing is the next best thing, which is giving them information every day that calms them down or gives them the bigger picture, yep. and I think mutes the scare tactics being used by others. Absolutely. Um, all right, so uh, aliens, we, we gotta talk about them real quick. Uh, let's just, we, we gotta admit they're out there somewhere. Uh, do they have pets or not? Are there animal aliens and human aliens? Wait, we gotta admit that they're out there? I, I would believe in- Are you, are you a, a non-believer in aliens? I would believe in ghosts before aliens. Really? But I don't believe in either. Why? Did you ever why? read? Uh, did you ever read? Uh, where is everybody? No. So, um, uh, where are they? The, what's his name? Uh, Enrico Fermi uh, okay. had had this like had this had this question, and nobody could like uh, if there is intelligent life, where are they? Yep. Or, and then I, this book has like twenty chapters of different theories. My favorite theory is that we're in a zoo. Um, and we're being monitored by them. It's a simulation almost. Yeah, I I like that. I like that one. But uh, I would, would, in the hierarchy of things that I find the most plausible, I would say like ghosts are more plausible than aliens. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I know, that's pretty controversial. Yeah, I'm offended by that. Because people look at like the vastness of the universe and of course there should be, no, I think think it's more probable. Listen, do you know that there's, uh, I saw recently they discovered like the 1,000, 37th planet. Yeah, and there's nothing there. Like, listen, when, when <laughs> in high school, they were telling us there was nine, right? Like, now they've got a thousand of them. Well, now we're downgrading planets. <laughs> we're saying, like, which is the one that they, that they said is, they're like, oh, actually, it's just a rock, and, <laughs> and you failed fourth grade. <laughs> it turns out, they're, like, they're, they're ripping down all my monuments. They're saying, now Pluto's not a planet. I, well, I think, uh, like literally, they were like, "There's nine planets," and then they're just like, "Now there's like, there's a thousand. Yeah, well, so I I think that um, the the best movies, those science fiction movies, are those the alien movies, though. Like the what was the one where th- they needed a communications expert to talk to these things? Oh, that's like all of them. No, this was really good. It's like two years old. I'll, I'll think about. It, I'll tell you later. All right. uh, the audience probably knows. <laughs> They'll tweet at us. Yeah. Um, all right. Before uh, before I let you go, uh, you can ask me one question. What do you want to ask? Um, I want to ask what you think is the tipping point for institutions and individual investors where it's no longer a a question of do you believe in 
Bitcoin or blah. Like, when is the what is the thing that has to happen? That's the moment where everyone says, "Yeah, yeah, why wouldn't I invest in that?" Yeah, or maybe it's not a moment. Maybe it takes long. I don't know. So, uh, first caveat is I'm only worried about Bitcoin. The rest of kind of the altcoins, etc., we'll see. But I think Bitcoin's got the the most serious chance and, and kind of the most security. And, and so we you know, we agree on that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I think that there's two quote unquote tipping points or kind of inflection points of what can happen. So one is uh, I really do believe that if all of a sudden a, a government, a sovereign wealth fund, you know, some large nation state related entity all of a sudden comes out and says, we bought 5% of the network, like this, the quote unquote scarcity, the musical chairs that just that race for 21 million Bitcoin explodes. Why would they do that? Why wouldn't they just buy 20% then and say that? Well, they could. Whatever the number, you know, you know right? what five twenty percent. Look, I mean, people have said, uh, "Why doesn't China just buy all of it?" Right? I mean, the, the people could do all kinds of different things. But I think the second that people realize, "Hey, this has now be gone from a technology, or this has gone from an investment opportunity to there's a nation state that believes that there is global wealth and global dominance okay. tied to it." I agree with you. That would be a major, major like watershed moment if some. Well, like, I'm at, like, maybe ready? it depends on the nation. Well, we'll just if Venezuela does it, I don't know if it's as bullish. Yeah, but, but. but yeah, but but take a uh, t- take China for I mean, China's for example. China comes out and says, "Bam, we just bought twenty percent of the network." U- U.S. is doing something, right? The other nation states are doing something. So this, so but so the knee jerk would be, "Oh my God, I have to buy." Well, but then I, the second reaction is, "Wait a minute, they're gonna they're gonna pervert it." They're gonna do what they always do. They're gonna they're gonna um, rewrite the rules, or they're gonna start arresting people who don't. They can't. They can arrest. They can arrest people who own it, right? But they can't. They can't. No, that's part of the arresting beauty. arresting people running the nodes. I, I mean, but it still doesn't stop it. That's the beauty of it. They can't kill it, right? So all right. So let's, let's just uh, hold though. So a nation state or related entity makes some okay. massive move, publicizes. I agree. It. it would be a big deal. P- people. Yep. Oh shit! We gotta jump in. Right. right. The second thing is uh, what we're starting to see now with um, all of the currency issues and the economic chaos. Uh, I don't. I'm not a believer that it's going to happen. Like the inflection point is going to be a third world country or, or like a developing world country, right? Because I think we already see kind of Venezuela, Argentina, Iran, Turkey. I mean, we can go through the whole thing, right? It's been going on since before we were born. Forever. Yeah. And, and Every so, year it's another one. Of course. And and so I believe that uh, this idea of like the fiat experiment is failing in some places. Absolutely believe that. What I think would be the other inflection point is if all of a sudden inflation starts to tick up and people, whether it's actually going to happen or not in the developed world, but they believe that it might happen, then all of a sudden what you get is you start to get people who, again, they're not going to go take 100% of their assets and, and move into the asset, uh, into Bitcoin. But if they begin to take a portion why of their is, assets. Why are you so sure that people will think that cryptocurrencies offer an inflation hedge in that scenario? Well, so I think what if they're worse? I I think that there's two things, right? So one is we know that Bitcoin, for example, is disinflationary and eventually will be deflationary. Why not? How much data do you have? What do you what do you have? Two years of data? Well, no, but but it's not on historical data. We can actually see the code that there's only 21 million that will be created. Yes, but if there are five other rivals to it that also gain legitimacy at the same time, they can't. legitimacy at the same time. Oh, so he, all right, ready? Here, here's a so then here's so two controversial that scarcity argument that 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 disinflationary argument goes out the window. No, no, no. here's two controversial thoughts for you. So one is uh, I tweeted this uh, the other day and people went nuts. Uh, Bitcoin is more transparent than the Fed, <laughs> right? Because here's why. So I can see the design, or I can see the actual code of how the system's designed. I can see every single transaction that's ever occurred from the beginning of. Bitcoin till today, and then I can also see what's happening right now at this moment, right? How much is being created? Did people flip out on you, and then, well, and then I can see what's supposed to happen in the future. And if that doesn't happen, but do you know why problem. people flipped out on you? Why? Because the Fed is supposed to be, the Fed is supposed to be autonomous and centralized. It is the lender of last resort. Yep. Prior to the Fed, it was J. Pierpont Morgan. Yep, would literally put a, put people in a chokehold and make them buy securities to stabilize the system. So the Fed came along to do that on a more systematized in a more uh, systematized way, and not have it be reliant on one person with a cigar. Um, so the Fed is—I don't think the Fed's primary—I uh, don't think the Fed's prime directive ought to be transparency. I think it ought to be the the institution that stands up and says, "We are the centralized buyer of last resort. Bring everything to our window. We will give you cash for it." There's no one in the Bitcoin ecosystem that A, could do that, B, has a vested interest to do that. So I think 
just comparing the two things is probably the original sin there. Um, of course. So whether or not one's more transparent, it's like me saying um, uh, an octopus is is uh, has more legs than a guitar. Like, <laughs> all right, what the fuck is your, you know, what's your, what's your point? Then How did you come up with that? Well, I'm just, that's, I mean, it's that, you know, so. That's where you think it is. I don't is. mean to okay. shit on your all tweet. Right. I'm sure it's a great tweet. RT, you favorited it. You don't even remember. I just air favorited it. And then the second thing is if Bitcoin fails as a currency or store of value, the whole thing goes down. And the thought process here is I can't take credit for this idea, but I really like it's around game theory, right? So if it is the largest, most secure today and it ends up being eclipsed by another currency that is given the kind of the king of crypto, um, you know, label, and it becomes the greatest store of value, all of a sudden, people are less likely to put their assets into that store of value, because they're always looking over their shoulder that just another one is going to eclipse it. You can't have a store of value if you have two stores of value. Exactly. Oh, shit. That's next level. Yeah. I, I haven't really thought about that. Um, Tw- tweet that and then and then think about it. So, so how? Well, so yeah, I like I think gold was permanently disrupted in 1982, mm-hmm. and it was disrupted not by another commodity. It was disrupted by uh, information. So it's not. So gold has never made an inflationary uh, an inflation adjusted high. Yep. Beyond the levels of 1981, 1982, like that was the all time high in real terms, which are the only terms that matter. So it's gone up and down over the last 30 five years, but it's never gotten above those levels. And it's not an accident. It's not a coincidence that that coincides with the PC revolution. Um, the reason why gold had this store of value quality to it and this and this importance in the global economy is because up and down the Silk Road, a stretch of 5,000 miles, of uh, a, a so, caravan Road, knew like what- The real Silk Road, not the crypto The Silk real Road. thing, right. But so, so somebody selling rugs on one end, um, you know, in Eastern Europe, knew how much gold they could get for their rugs on the opposite end in Africa or, or in, in Asia. And so it was this thing that if you weren't bartering, here's a goat, give me, you know, give me a stick. <laughs> if, um, if you weren't bartering, then what you were essentially doing is trying to exchange something for something. And gold was like this universal agreed upon thing. Um, in 1981, all of a sudden, everyone had a PC on their desk instantaneously around the world everyone knew the price of everything you no longer needed that thing in the middle that was this ultimate last resort exchange vehicle um and i don't so i don't think it's a coincidence that we saw the inflation adjusted high of gold at the same time as the pc revolution swept the world um and so when we're talking about stores of value yeah i I think i think it's a very good point that you make that you could have this king of crypto kind of thing and then something new comes along neither will work if you scare people into thinking that, hey, there actually is no commodity that's a store of value, it turns out. Yeah. All right. We're, uh, did, we're, I blow, we're pushing did, I, did I blow your mind, man? Nah, we're All pushing right. you farther and farther down the Bitcoin maximalist uh, uh, path there. I'm almost there. All right. All right. The famous downtown Josh Brown, thank you so much for coming. Thank this you, is, uh, this is a lot of fun. All right. Thank you. Thanks again to our sponsor, Block Estate. To check out their tokenized real estate fund, you can check out www.blockestate.com. Hey, everyone. Pop here. If you like this episode of Off The Chain and want to help us take crypto to the top of the Apple, Spotify, and other podcast charts, please do us a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. To review, simply go to the Off The Chain homepage, scroll down until you see the five blank stars. Taking 15 seconds to fill those stars in and leave a quick review goes a long way in helping us take the entire crypto ecosystem to the top of the charts. I appreciate you listening and see you next time on Off The Chain.